repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You remember the the context of this entire section goes all the way back to chapter 2. It goes back to chapter 2 and verse 9, where the Apostle Peter reminds us that we are God's chosen people and that we belong to Him, that we are His possession. But then there's a purpose in Him possessing us, in Him choosing us. In verse chapter 2 of verse 9, says that uh, we are His possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into the marvelous light. And then he goes on in verse 12 to say that the way that we do that, the way that we, uh, that we proclaim this is by keeping our conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, we're to proclaim not only with our mouth, but we are to proclaim God's goodness by the way that we live. And people should see the way that we live and be led based on our testimony, based on on the reality of a changed life that we're living before them. They should then be led to glorify God. The most powerful thing that we have, we've said this, the most powerful tool that we have in evangelism is the power of a changed life. If you know Jesus Christ, you've been born again and your life should be different. Uh, You should stand out and, and you ought to live in This way. Now, Peter has worked through some of the implications. That was the general principle. And then he took that principle and he began to look at the various spheres of our life, the various ways in which we live, the relationships that we have. And he began to apply that principle live so that people will glorify God because of you. And he looked at our relationship to the government. And and in each of these relationships, the thing that he emphasizes is this idea of submission. So he talks to us in relationship to government and he calls on us as believers, as Christians, even though the government sometimes does things that we disagree with, uh, even even though we sometimes don't care for the things that they do, we're to submit to them. And and the power of us submitting, especially when we're submitting to those that we don't agree with because they've been placed there by God is something that will lead others to glorify God. He then dealt with. The family. He talked to wives, and we talked about how wives are called to submit to the godly leadership of their husbands. And then he looked at husbands, and he said that husbands are to live in, in an understanding way. They're, they're to live in a selfless way for their wives. We looked at work relationships. He deals with slaves and masters, and he recognizes that that's not an ideal or a, a necessarily a good institution, but he's recognizing that he. Uh, it has people that he's writing to that are slaves. And he says the way that you need to interact is to submit to that authority, even though it's not a great authority. And even though sometimes they're wicked, you need to submit to that. All of that is because we have this greater purpose in our life. If you're a Christian, the greatest purpose is not your glory. The greatest purpose in your life is to bring glory to God. And so we submit in, in each of this, each of these areas. 
But finally, he, he comes in verse 8 now, and it's so we're still connected in that greater argument that he's made, making. But now he begins to look at the church. He begins to deal with relationships, not in the family, not in the government, not in our workplace, but within the church body itself. That's why he says finally in verse 8, he's coming to the end of this section. He said, live to glorify God. This is how you do that in relationship to the government. This is how you do that in your workplace. This is how you do that in the family. And now this is how you do it in the church. All of you, finally, all of you. So he's, he's addressing all of them in the various points before he was he was uh, addressing individual contingencies he was talking to husbands or to wives to slaves he was talking to those under authority of the government but now he calls on all of them this is this is a word for all of us so so don't think that that this morning as we deal with this uh, that somehow that you're uh, uh, you're uh, not part of this or, or somehow this doesn't apply to you. Uh, this is for all of us. This is how we are to live together as a body of Christ, as a church. We're called to live in this way. And this is what we're going to look at this morning. Now, we see in this, though, Peter doesn't Peter doesn't call on us to submit to one another in those direct words. I think submission to one another is still the idea that he's driving at here. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, of course, that's the passage again that calls on wives to submit to the leadership of their husband. But before he does that, Paul in Ephesians 5.21 is speaking to the whole congregation, to the whole church, and he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So there's a way that we live submitting to the needs and the concerns of each other, and that's what we're called to do this morning we're called to submit to one another you know the way that we treat one another and this is what Peter's getting at here the way that we treat one another is an integral part of our testimony and it can lead other people to worship God we know that from experience don't we we know that when a church is is at peace when, when the relationships are good, when, when we're displaying the kind of love that we ought to have for one another, that's a very powerful testimony, but it works the other way, doesn't it? And, and far too often it works the other way. When people come to church or they know people that go to certain churches and they're always bickering, and they're always fighting, there's no unity, there's no love, there's no sympathy, there's no concern for one another. When they see that, people say, I, I know all about that church. I know people that go to that church and I don't want to be a part of it. And, and so this is a very powerful thing. If we're going to lead others to glorify God based on our actions, then we need to think about how we, how we live at work, how we live in the family, uh, how we live and relate to the government. But one of the most important things is how we relate to one another. That is a very powerful uh, thing. The, the, the testimony of countless people that I've talked to and, and heard reports back uh, is that they are often driven away from the church and because of the church, because of us, the way that we live. And, and ultimately, as we think about that, we're driving people away from Christ. We're flipping this upside down. Peter said, your, your life is supposed to be such a powerful testimony that you're like a magnet attracting people to the Lord. But unfortunately, we know it to be the case that far too often we're, we're repelling people away from the Lord. 
Sometimes the way that we live, the way that we relate, the way that we are hateful toward one another, the way that we gossip toward one another and and show and, and display a lack of love, instead of drawing people to the Lord, we're repelling them away from Him. What a terrible thing. We're, we're, we're exact opposite of what we ought to do. Now this morning we're going to look at several things. And uh, there's nothing new here. We've talked about all of these things before. We've, we've been called to all of them before. All this, this love, this brotherly love, this unity, uh, this sympathy. We, we've preached sermons on this and we've talked about this at length. But, but it's a needed reminder. It's nothing profound, it's nothing new, but it's something as a church we've got to be called back to over and over and over again. The reality is our hearts are so sinful that we need to be reminded of these things on a regular basis. So, so how do we relate to one another as a church? How do we relate to one another in such a way that our, our community here could be a compelling reason for people to come to the Lord? What are things that should should be on display in the way that we're living, in the way that we're relating, that people would look at that and say, look, look, they go to Union Baptist. Man, that's a great place to go. Man, I, you know, I, I, don't know, I don't go to church. I don't really, I'm not really religious. But there's something about that, that group of people that is very compelling. What, what are the things that we can do as a church and the way that we relate to one another that could begin to create that kind of concept in the community well the first thing and and what we'll probably spend most of our time on this morning is this idea of unity of mind finally all of you have unity of mind now it's interesting as we we come to this when we talk about unity and and being of one mind uh, look there's a call for unity in nearly every book in the new testament you know the the books of the new testament are letters that were written if you imagine uh, the Apostle Paul being around today, it's as if he wrote uh, the letter to Union Baptist or the letter to Hallsville Baptist or the letter to, to Lewisport Baptist. They're, they're individual letters and they're tailored for the needs of that specific church. Scholars say that they're occasional, meaning there's an occasion, there's a specific purpose that these letters were written. Paul didn't just sit down and say, let me write everything that I know. He's writing being in tune with their needs and what's going on in that particular church. And, and so he's writing it. And the other authors, Peter and John, they're writing about specific churches and the things that are going on. Well, isn't it interesting then that of all the things that could be said and needed to be said, that nearly every New Testament letter that was written, there was a call to unity. Why do you think that is? Because in every church, there's this tendency for disunity. We're all sinners and there's that tendency in every church for there to be division within the church. And Peter and John and the writer of Hebrews, every time they write to a letter, they're calling on them to be unified. Just listen to some of the the letters that were written. Romans chapter 15, verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Later on in Romans 16, verse 17, he says, watch out for those who cause division. Watch out for those who cause division. As he writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1, 2, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all, all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind 
and the same judgment. The second letter to the Corinthians, he writes to them again. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. And I think there's a, there's a promise there. As you live in peace, the God who is peace, the God who's love and peace will be with you in a special way. Do you want God's presence in the church? Then, then we need to le- be unified. Uh, the, the letter to the Ephesians. The Apostle Paul urges the same thing. Ephesians 4.1 I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So, so live in such a way that you're living up to this salvation that you have. Well, what does that look like, Paul? And so he, he tells them with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Colossians 3, we won't read that one. 1 Thessalonians 5, the letter to the uh, Thessalonica church. He says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. So there he's writing to the church and he's saying, listen, you've got leaders in the church. They're over you in the Lord. They've been given a task. And so you need to esteem them very highly because of the work they've been given. And one of the things that you need to do because you esteem them is to be at peace among yourselves. Don't make their job hard. Don't make it difficult. Don't always be bickering and divisive. Be at peace among yourselves. But then he talks to the pastors in 1 Timothy chapter 3. He says, pastors must not be quarrelsome. Now, I really don't understand why he would write that because I've never known any pastors who would be quarrelsome. I've never known any pastors that would be divisive. Y'all are hopefully picking up on the, the sarcasm there. So, so in one book, he's writing to the church, be at peace, esteem your leaders in the church. But then he's writing to the pastors he's saying, if you're a pastor, look, one of the one of the qualifications, the baseline qualifications is that you cannot be a quarrelsome person. We've got no place for that in the church. Second Timothy chapter three, but understand this in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. And he, he talks about the, the way that people will be. And one of the things that he says is that people will be unappeasable. Uh, they, they'll be difficult to work with. There will be no peace, implacable. Uh, those who are always and constantly in a state of conflict. And, and all you've got to do is look on Facebook to see that probably we're living in the last days, right? Because people are unappeasable. They're, they're always in some kind of, it seems, some kind of personal conflict. In the church, we're to be different, right? That's, the, that's a sign of the time in the world out there. But we've been called to be different. We're, we're called to live in such a way that we bring glory to God and we point others to the Lord. And so that should not be true in the church. We should not be those who are unappeasable. When Titus, Paul tells uh, Titus, he says, as for the person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. In other words, he's telling Titus, you need to practice church discipline. And, and one of the things that you should discipline, not just, not just when somebody runs out on their wife, not, not when they just commit some kind of overt, really bad sin, Not just when they go out to the bars and get drunk. You need to practice church discipline. And one of the reasons you need to discipline is for those who continue to stir up strife. You warn them once, and then you warn them a second time, and after that, have nothing more to do 
with them. Churches, sometimes if they would do this, would save themselves a lot of trouble. Churches too often uh, put up with, with divisive people for years and years. And, and they, they hinder a church from its ministry. They hinder the church from doing the kinds of things that they ought to be doing because they're always focused inwardly just trying to deal with this next conflict that, that brother so-and-so has stirred up once again. The writer of Hebrews says that we're to strive for peace with all men. Nearly every New Testament book that is written gives some kind of call to be, pe- to be peaceful and to be unified. Here Peter tells us, all of you have unity of mind. Literally, this means to be of one mind. To be of one mind. We're to, we're to think the same way. Well, what does that mean? That, that sounds kind of scary. Are, we just, are you all just expected to kind of go along with whatever I say? You know, you, you've got sort of the cult leader model. And everybody just blindly follows that person, whatever they say. It doesn't matter. Everybody just gets in line behind behind the leader. Well, no, that's not what we're called to. We're called to have one mind, but the mind isn't mine. The mind isn't the mind of the deacons. The mind isn't the mind of, uh, of the Sunday school teacher. The one mind that we're all supposed to be unified in is the mind of Christ. We're all supposed to, to follow Christ as we're, as we're submitting to the teaching of Christ. And as we're getting on board with the mission that Christ has given us to do, there will be unity. It's not about getting in line with what I think or what somebody else thinks. It's about getting in line with the teaching of Jesus Christ and getting in line with the mission that he's given us to do as a church. This is what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. He says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit... Any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. So Paul calls us to the same thing. Be of the same mind. Have the same mind. Think the same way. Having the same love. Being in full accord and of one mind. So what is this mind? Well, he goes on to say in verse 5 of this chapter, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This mind belongs to us who are following Jesus Christ. You see, as you submit to the leadership of Jesus Christ, as you submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ, as you submit to the teaching of Jesus Christ, there's just naturally going to arise a unity. There's going to come a unity. The problem in churches that are divisive is that one or more people are not walking in line with the teaching of Jesus Christ. It amazes me at the number of times you hear things like this. People say, I know what I'm supposed to do. I know what the way that I'm supposed to be living. But, well, well, everything after that, you've just wiped away everything before that. It doesn't matter. I know what I'm supposed to do, but some excuse that holds no weight. Let me know how that works out on the judgment day when Christ asks you why you were not obedient. There's no excuses. We're all to be following the teaching of Jesus Christ. And as we're, teach, as we're following His teaching, as you're submitting to His teaching, and I'm submitting to His teaching, and all of us will begin to be unified when we're doing the kinds of things that Christ taught us to do, to love one another, to forgive one another, to pray for those who despitefully use us. When we're starting all of us to live in that way, unity will be a natural outcome of following Jesus Christ, but not only following his teaching, what about following the commission that he's given us, the task that he's given us? You know, so many churches are divided and they're divided over what should we do? What what kinds of things should we be doing? But the problem is we really shouldn't have diverse ideas about what a church should be doing. 
Because the church has a commission. We've got a purpose, and that is the Great Commission. Go into all the world and make disciples. Uh, the church isn't about, uh, about my preferences. The church isn't about, well, I want things this way or I want things that way. The church is about all of us coming together to make disciples of the nations. And it starts right here in Hancock County. The purpose of our church is to, to spread the gospel and to make disciples. And when we all get unified, not around a certain worship style, not, not around a certain ministries that we think are important, but when we get focused around the Great Commission, there will be Unity, when we all have a common purpose. Tom Rayner said uh, this in, in his book on church membership. He said, when the preferences of the church members become greater than their passion for the gospel, the church is already dying. And it certainly will be experiencing disunity. Church isn't about what preference of music you have. There, sir, there are certain types of music I like, certain types of music other people are like, but we should not raise that to the level uh, that causes division. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what kind of worship music we're going. If we're, if we're making our main goal to make disciples, that's what we're here for. And, and we may sing songs that, that one person likes or somebody else doesn't care for as much. The goal, though, is not to have a place where, where they sing the songs that I like. The goal for all of us is to be making disciples. Unity comes when we all get around this common mission. Unity also comes when we focus on glorifying God. Remember, that's what Peter has told us. You're, to, you're, you're a people for his possession. You're a chosen race, a royal people, uh, a royal priesthood, a people for his, uh, his possession so that you can bring glory to God. And if that's our focus in life, you know, disunity comes when I'm worried about my own glory, when I want things my way. When I want the focus to be on me and you want the glory and you want the focus to be on you, then we have tension. Then there's disunity. But if my focus and my concern is the glory of God and your focus and your concern is the glory of God, there will be unity. That's what Paul says in that passage that we read in Romans 15. He says, Romans 15, 5, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice, it's given this picture of, of sort of being singing in unison, with one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ welcomed you. You see, the, the goal of harmony is, not, is not, not to get rid of diversity. As a choir gets up and sings, uh, they're in harmony they're all singing different parts, though. Uh, but they, they sing those different parts, and as they're singing, they come together for a unified sound. That's what we're to be like. We're all diverse people. We've got diverse backgrounds. We've got diverse... Paul tells us we've got all got different kinds of gifts that we use, but, but we ought to be using them in a way that brings harmony so that together we're glorifying God. That's what we're called to do. Like, like a choir... Would sing. We blend that diversity together to bring harmony. What a great thing. I don't know if you've ever been in a choir or been at, at some kind of conference or something where you've got a large mass of people, a concert, uh, and they're all singing a unified song. They're all singing together. They're coming together in harmony. I remember being at, at uh, Together for the Gospel, and there were about 10,000 people, and, and there was worship and praise there, but there was a certain time where 
the, the music stopped and we all just, a cappella, we just sang, uh, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Just about 10,000 people just in harmony singing that. What a wonderful thing. That's what the church is to be like. Our lives are coming together in harmony, in unity, to glorify God. You know, when in a choir, it's, it's always a bad thing if you want to stand out, right? If you want to be the voice that is heard, if there's something prideful about you that kind of wants to make everybody hear you instead of just the choir, that, that becomes problematic. I don't know if you all watch Andy Griffith. I, I did. I grew up watching Andy Griffith, and you remember Barney singing in the choir. He was terrible, right? He stood out, but it, it's for all the wrong reasons. And Andy finally gives him a microphone and says, I'm going to give you a special part. But this microphone is so strong, you just got to really sing low. And he kept singing, and finally Andy kept telling him lower and lower until he's not singing at all. But he's like, that's perfect. And he's got somebody in the back that was singing that. I, I love that show. That's a great show. But it, it helps us see some of us are like that, isn't it? Isn't it true? There are some people in the church that are like that. They want to be heard. They want to cut against the grain. They want to go their own way. And, and they're always causing division. They're always stirring things up. And, and they're dis- destroying that unity and that harmony that we are called to have as the church of Jesus Christ. And so we ought to be unified. You know, unity doesn't come naturally. You know that, right? If, if we're just waiting for peace to come, it's not going to come. Peace comes when we pursue peace. That's what Peter says here, isn't it? He says in verse 11, let him seek peace and pursue it. Union Baptist Church, if you want to be unified, if you want peace in the church, you can't just sit around and hope there are no problems. There will always be problems. You can't just sit around and wait for me to not make any dumb decisions as your pastor. I'm always going to make dumb decisions. The the peace has to come when we decide that we're going to live for the glory of God and we're going to pursue peace even though people say hurtful things, even though there are problems in the church, even though sometimes the direction of the church isn't exactly what we would want. We've got to seek peace. We've got to be committed to peace above all that because if you wait for those things to go away, there will never be peace. You must seek peace and pursue it. It's what Paul said in Ephesians 4. You must be eager to maintain the bond of peace. It's something you got to fight for. It's something you got to maintain. It's what, what the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews chapter 12. Strive for peace. It doesn't just happen. You've got to strive for it. You've got to work for it. You've got to be committed to it. And if we're all here for the glory of God, if we're all submitting to the teaching of Christ and we're all here for the great commission, we've got a single purpose, then we can put aside our preferences. We can put aside when somebody says something that doesn't just sit just right with us. We can set those feelings aside and say, more than I care about my my own little offenses, I care about the glory of God. And when we do that, we'll seek peace. We'll pursue it. We'll strive after peace. We'll be eager to maintain peace. The bond of peace. And so we're called to strive for it. The church should be a place of unity. And again, I've I've emphasized this point this morning. Because as I talk to people in the community and I talk uh, to various people, this is one of the things that you hear a lot of times. I just don't like church. There's just so much fighting. So much discord. Why would I want to? I've got enough drama in my life without becoming a member of the church where I can just add drama to it and have all kinds of... No, no, we ought to be a compelling community. We ought to be leading... People ought to look at us and say, hey, look at all the 100, 
120 people together, and they're just unified. They love each other. They care for each other. You never hear about fights, and you never hear about bad business meetings and all this. They're unified. And that ought to be a, a testimony that people have about Union Baptist Church. We'll move quickly on these other ones. Sympathy. He calls for us, secondly, to have sympathy. This word literally means to feel the same thing. To feel with. Pathos is the word for passion or feeling. And he calls for us to have the same feeling. To be concerned for one another. Tom Schreiner says and defines it this way. It means caring deeply about the needs, joys, and sorrows of others. Listen, we all know the pain that we go through in in our lives. We all know the experiences that we go through. Losing loved ones. Losing jobs. Having sicknesses and diseases and problems, having having conflict in our marriage, having difficult with our difficulties with our children. And one of the things that makes all of that worse is when we feel like we're alone. We feel like we have to be the ones to just deal with this on our own. And we come to church and we don't feel like we can open up. We don't feel like anybody cares about our needs. And so we've got to smile and we've got to come in because it's church and we've got to shake hands and say, oh yes, everything's wonderful. Everything's going great. The church ought to be a community where we feel the same thing. Where, where as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, when one member suffers, we all suffer. And I can, I can sympathize with what you are going through. Paul says in Romans 12 as well, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. The church ought to be a place where we feel with each other, where we're close enough. Now that requires close community, doesn't it? We have community groups and part of the reason we have community groups is because we're trying to foster a a, a close-knit community where we actually know what's going on in one another's lives. I can't sympathize with you if I don't know what's happening in your life. This is why Paul tells us in Philippians 2.4, he says, let, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but to the interest of others. And that word look, it doesn't just mean glance. It means to, to look intently, to, to stare at. We ought to be looking after each other. Our eyes ought to be focused, not on, not, you know, that's where it always is usually, right? It's like we got blinders on and we, we see our problems, we see our kids, we see our finances, we see our, our job, and, and that's all we're looking at. Maybe occasionally we'll glance over, oh, I'm, I'm sorry you're going through that, but, but we are blinded and we're just focused in on our lives. But the church ought to be a place where we're looking intently at others. There ought to be that kind of love and that kind of concern so that I know when you're having a hard time with your kids or when you're struggling in your marriage that we're coming alongside one another and we're feeling that same thing. Now that works both ways because church, that means sometimes we got to get comfortable with opening up. We've got to allow ourselves to, to enter into those kind of relationships. Many of us are, are so closed off. We're, we're so, uh, we don't want anybody to know what's going on in our lives. And, and we have to be willing to open up to that. But church, we ought to be looking after one another. You know, it's, it's an amazing thing about human beings. We, we are, we're able to just see suffering going on around us and just divert our focus away and keep our eyes ahead of us. I, I'll never forget just thinking about the, the Nazi camp concentration camps. And at the end of World War II, when it was all over, there were so many citizens of, of Germany that said, we really didn't know what was going on. You know, all these, all these Jews were disappearing and they were being carried off to these concentration camps just miles outside of our city. But we didn't really know what was going on. I just read an article this week 
where, where someone did some research and said they really did know what was going on. Uh, for the most part, they knew that these people were disappearing. They might not know everything that was happening to them in those concentration camps, but they knew it. And they just chose to, because it didn't affect them, just let me divert my attention. Let me go to work. Let me, let me raise my kids. And, and they just let atrocities happen right under their nose because they were so self-focused. Church, we can be like that. We can, we can have people, and there are people right now that are suffering. There are people in our church that are going through life-changing, difficult circumstances, and we're all just like, well, I've got to go to work. I've got to do this. I've got to take my kids to, to baseball. I've got to take my kids to basketball. My, my schedule's too busy for anybody else except me. We ought to be sympathetic, church. We're called to feel the same thing, to rejoice with those who rejoice and suffer with those who are suffering. He calls on us also to, be, uh, to have brotherly love. We won't get into all of this, but, but Jesus told us, didn't he, that the marker of the identifying marker of his followers would be that they had love for one another. And this goes right along with what Peter is teaching. People will glorify God when they see your life. And one of the things that they ought to see about the church is that we have brotherly love, that we have concern for one another. Not only brotherly love, but also, he says, a tender Heart. This, is, this goes along with that idea of being sympathetic. A hard-hearted person is a person that has just kept themselves from feeling. But, but we're to be tender-hearted. Paul tells us that in Ephesians 2, right? Be tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. You ought to be tender-hearted toward one another. And then he calls us to have a humble mind. Pride is when we value ourselves more importantly than others. But humility is when we begin to value others as more important than ourselves. And that's what Paul calls us to in Philippians 2. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Are you doing that within the body of Christ, within Union Baptist Church? Are you considering others' needs as more important than your own? That goes back to that idea of sympathy, how we're just focused on ourselves. And Paul tells us in Philippians 2, and what Peter's calling us to, is that we ought to be feeling what they are feeling. Uh, We we ought to be counting their needs as more important than ours. We shouldn't be so self-focused. We shouldn't just be, uh, be thinking about what we have going on in our lives. We need to make time. Listen, one of the things that we need to do as a church is each of us, we need to go through an inventory of our life and just say, what do I need to get rid of so that I can obey the commands that God has given me? You know, because being busy isn't an excuse. When you stand before the Lord on Judgment Day and He said, were you sympathetic? Did you count others' needs as more important? You you say, no, I I had baseball, I had work, I had this, I had that. That's not going to be a legitimate excuse for why you didn't love as you're called to love. We need to think about clearing our lives out a little bit and and focusing on maybe just the things that are most important to us so that we will have time to be in community with one another. You know, that's why we don't spend time together. That's why we don't do it because we feel like like there's no time there. That's not a legitimate excuse. We're called to love one another. We're called to be of a humble mind. The result of all this, and we'll close with this, I I think there are three... Results. If we begin to live this way, 
We actually, we don't just say, oh, that's good. And yeah, that, that's a great idea that we ought to strive for. Now, if we really started to live in this way, I think there are three, uh, three things that would, would happen. First of all, we'd have a caring community. Wouldn't it be great if, if church, you know, you say, well, I, oh, yeah, I go to church with them. Just like, oh, I work with that person and my kids go to school with that person. But if, if the church really became a community, you know, there was a reason that the early Christians were called brothers and sisters. It was because they were a tight-knit group. They were, they were like a family. Wouldn't it be great to know that there were people that are weeping when you weep and that are rejoicing when you rejoice? And you know there are people that have your back when you're going through trials and difficulties. You don't even have to second-guess it. You know that the people of Union Baptist are going to be there to support you. It's a caring community. But the second thing, it's a, it's a compelling community. If we were to live that way, as we've seen, I think that would be a powerful testimony that would lead others to glorify God. And that's exactly what Peter is calling us to. But the third and final thing is that we would be a blessed community. We see this here that, that we're called to this in verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. So you're called to bless others so that you will obtain a blessing. What is that blessing? Well, I think there are several things. He talks about those who love life. In other words, their life will be blessed. God's ears will be open to their prayer. His eyes are on those who do these things. In other words, he, in, in a good way. And those who do not do this, he says in verse 12, the, the face of the Lord is against them. Do you want to be blessed in your life? Do you want to... For our church to be blessed? Well, the, the means to receiving that blessing has been given here today. If we begin to live in this way, if we begin to have sympathy, if we begin to have brotherly love for one another, God will bless us and he will bless our church. It will be a, a blessed community. Will you pray with me this morning? Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we are, we are grateful, Lord, for your